in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we got a heavy passage here in Luke chapter number three. We're going to talk about uh, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. We learned a little bit about him um, about a month ago when we were looking at Elizabeth and Zacharias and how that they were given this promise that that even in their old age, and even though Elizabeth couldn't have children, that they were going to have a son, and and that this son would be unlike just any other child. That this would be the one who would be the forerunner and the one to prepare the way, prepare the hearts of people for Jesus the Messiah. And that, that John from his birth, it was a unique birth. It was a special calling and anointing upon John. And that John was very, um, we would say, unconventional. He wasn't part of the establishment. John uh, just did his thing and really he did God's thing. And followed God's calling. And John became very popular. And, and, and John drew these great crowds that would come out into the hill country, into the wilderness to hear him preach. And even though John was gathering a lot of people, he angered a lot of people because his message was to the point. His message was a message to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the Messiah is now about to arrive on the scene, and, and your hearts need to turn from your sin in preparation to receiving the Messiah, the only one that can truly save you from your sin. And so, as you can imagine, this message was not a super popular message. Now, he did draw crowds because they were just, a lot of people were just intrigued by John. And he said the hard things. He said the bold things. And so John is preparing the hearts of people for the Messiah. And this is where we pick up. So last week we talked about Jesus, a, a small window into the boyhood of Jesus when he was 12 years old. And then the scripture picks up. Where now 18 years later, John the Baptist is on the scene, the cousin of Jesus. And he is, it says now in the uh, verse number one, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of, of Iturea and the region of, of Traconia or Trachonitis and uh, Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene. And Caiaphas being the high priest, the, uh, or Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So this isn't surprising how Luke begins this chapter, right? Luke's a historian. Luke is giving us factual information. Luke is naming specific people, specific places. And he's going to start with really some of the leaders over, uh, over really the whole Roman Empire, with, uh, with Caesar all the way down to the more local leaders and then talking about the religious leaders. And so this is the setting. And when we see these names of these rulers, we're able to deduct that this is putting us somewhere around AD 29. And so Luke is, is giving us this information. He says that, um, that the, the emperor is now Tiberius Caesar. So no longer Caesar Augustus when uh, Jesus was born. This is now... Tiberius Caesar, who is the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate, he is the governor, the Roman procurator over Judea, and we've talked before about, about Pontius Pilate and just the, the absolute disaster that his rule was. 
that, that he just hated the Jews. The feeling was mutual. They just despised this guy, could not stand him. And, and Pilate just, as we read from history, just did a lot of really dumb things to tick off the Jews and anger the Jews, so much so the Jews appealed to Caesar, complained to Caesar, and, and, and Caesar um, really uh, put his feet to the fire and, and made him back down on some things. But he just despised them. They despised him. In fact, many times he just would try to stay off to the coast of Caesarea and didn't even want to be in uh, Jerusalem except for the big feasts and different things where he knew he needed to be there to try to squash any uprisings or any type of rebellions but Pontius Pilate, he's the governor over Judea, and he's actually, he was the fifth governor to rule over this region. It was just problem after problem. Um, and so Pilate is the governor. Now we see another name, Herod. He is ruling over Galilee. So Herod the Great, he had passed away. Remember, he was the one that ordered all the, the newborn um, babies, the males, to be put to death. And so Jesus, uh, so Mary and Joseph, Jesus, they, they, they get out of there. They head to Egypt, and they stay there until this crazy Herod dies, and they are able to return. So this, this Herod is off the scene now. When he passed away, he divided his, his area there or, or kingdom or that region um, amongst his sons. So now it's Herod Antipas. Antipas replaced his brother Archelaus. So Archelaus was replaced, get this, because he was too vicious and too savage of a leader. So Rome replaced him. Now you have to be pretty bad. You have to be pretty vicious for the Roman Empire to say, ooh, that's a little bit over the top. You're a little bit too aggressive. You're a little too ruthless. But that's how bad that he was. And so now you have, and by the way, this Herod Antipas was, was no angel himself, as we're going to see. Then you have Philip and, and another name, uh, Licinius. They ruled over this region as well. And here's the point. These were horrible ungodly pagan rulers and leaders but yet we see that god's purpose and plan was not going to be thwarted it was not going to be stopped that there were still going to be men like john the baptist there were still going this is going to be the time when christ is going to begin his earthly ministry and just a few short years of earthly ministry and then he's going to be crucified but yet we see that even though these ruthless evil leaders were in charge that God's purpose and God's plan would not be stopped. Now that gives us hope, amen? Now hopefully, you know, as believers, we're involved in our politics and we're going to vote for people that at least somewhat hopefully fear God and respect God's word. And I know that it's harder and harder to really have that. And, and you know, maybe it's been a long time since we've truly had that. And I think as Christians, we need to be involved and we need to vote for people that are, that are not going to promote a culture of death, that are not going uh, to be evil, godless rulers. So do your part as a citizen, but also rest in the fact that even if we don't have the leaders and rulers that we think we should have or that we want to have, God's purposes and plans are not going to be stopped. God's church is still going to march forward. God's will is still going to be done. So here we have these leaders, bad leaders, political leaders in the Roman Empire. And now he's going to name uh, Annas and Caiaphas. They were the high priests. So there would only be one high priest at a time. So why is there mentioned 
two, why Annas and Caiaphas? Well, Caiaphas was the acting high priest, the son-in-law to Annas, but Annas was, he was really the one that the Jews looked at as the shot caller. He was the patriarchal high priest. Remember when they were arresting Jesus and trying to try him? They first bring him to Annas. Annas is the one calling the shots. This guy is the one that they look to as the real, the, the real high priest. But yet Rome, we think, Rome probably replaced him with Caiaphas, thinking they could control Caiaphas a little bit more. But these are the, the high priests at this time. And it says it's during this time. During this setting, around AD 29, that the word of the Lord is going to come to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And we know that John, this is a prophet of God. He is called of God because the word of God is coming to John. And then John is going to relay that word, relay that message to the people. And it says he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remissions of sins. And now he's going to quote from Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet is, is predicting this hundreds of years prior that there would be a prophet, one that would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He says, as it is written in the book or in the book of the words of Isaiah or Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will be made straight, and the rough way shall be smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So in other words, he's saying that John the Baptist's message in his word is that prepare because the Messiah is going to arrive. These phrases about every valley filled, every mountain and hill low, making the crooked places straight. This language is all symbolic of prepare because the king is coming. Prepare because the Messiah is on the way. And so typically what would happen, historically what would happen if like a king or, or an emperor or someone of high status was going to visit a place... They would send their messengers. They would send their couriers. They would send people to say, hey, get ready. Prepare your roads. Remove the obstacles because the person that's coming, he's a big deal. And you need to prepare the way. And this is symbolic language here. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene and he is saying, prepare the way because the Messiah's coming. Prepare the way. All flesh will see the salvation of God, this is speaking that the good news of the gospel, it's going to go forward to all, both Jew and Gentile, both rich and poor, both young and old, both male and female. The message to repent of your sins, prepare your hearts for the, to receive the Messiah. This message is going out to all. This is the message of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, he is baptized, he's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So what's up with this baptism? Now, well, while there are some similarities to John's baptism and the baptism that we as Christians do when we are professing our faith in Jesus Christ, our Messiah, while there's some similarities, it's not entirely the same. See, baptism is always an identification. You're identifying with a message. And so John's message was this, prepare your hearts for the Messiah who's coming. And some people, 
can maybe take this to think, oh, do I need, when I'm, when I'm physically baptized, is that what washes away my sins? And absolutely not. John's baptism was saying this, that you need to identify with this message, believe this message, that you are a sinner and that the Messiah is coming. And if you're not willing to admit and see your sinful heart and your need for your sins to be forgiven, then you're never going to accept the Messiah who's coming, right? Because the message of the gospel is good news. It's glorious news. But unless someone understands, unless we understand that we are sinners, that we are rebels against a holy, righteous God, well, the message of salvation is going to come to us with really not that much effect because it's like, well, what do I need to be saved from? I'm pretty good. I'm okay. I don't really, I mean, that's nice that Jesus came and was born and we can, you know, celebrate at Christmas time and, you know, even do the Easter thing about the resurrection. Oh, that's nice. But if we don't realize, no, we are sinners who deserve nothing but judgment, who deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Well, the message of the gospel is not really going to be all that important to us if we don't realize that we need to be saved from something. And so John saying this, look, you need to be baptized. This was a baptism of preparing your hearts for the Messiah, recognizing that we need a savior. Now, it's important to note that those that were baptized of John, they were later baptized again in what we call Christian baptism or believers baptism. But this baptism, baptism always was a sign and always is still now. It's a sign of identification. When we're baptized, when we baptize now, we baptize um, those that are old enough to profess faith, those that believe, because that's what the Bible teaches. That when you're, you, that everybody that was baptized, it's after they believe. It's after they are able to profess faith, and then baptism is that outward sign. It is that identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's saying that I have been saved. What happened? I have a new person. I'm raised to walk in newness of life. It's the outward profession of that inward possession. So when we baptize now, we're, we're, when, we're, when someone is baptized, they're saying, I'm identifying with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's not the physical water that washes away our sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. But baptism is important. It's very symbolic. It's identifying with that message. Well, John's baptizing people, and this is a baptism of repentance saying, John's saying, look, you need to see your sin. You need to prepare your hearts for the Messiah who's coming to take away your sin. In John chapter, um, in, in John chapter 1, I think it's John chapter 1. I just said that off the top. I think it's John chapter 1. John says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That the Messiah is the only one who can wash our sins away. And so while there's some similarities to this baptism, it's not the exact same as baptism now. It, it's always been an identification. So being baptized by John, it demonstrated a recognition of one's sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to follow the law or to follow God's law 
in anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. So this would be absolutely insulting to a lot of the Jews, right? The Jews, they baptized, but they did proselyte baptism. They would baptize a non-Jews who says, I want to follow Judaism and I want to become a, a, a believer and I want to become a Jew. They would baptize, but this would be an odd message to them. It would be an offensive message to them. John's pointing out though, hey, the, the, even to the Jews, your religion is bankrupt. See, they were corrupt. They were evil in, on the inside. They were the ones who needed to repent. They needed to be baptized. But more than just that outward baptism, John's going to emphasize that they needed to show fruit of repentance, that they needed to show fruit that they truly were repenting of their sin and that they were going to turn to the Messiah. So we see this. John is going to verse number seven. He says, then he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Oh, generation of vipers. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, you're vipers. You're a brood of vipers. You're serpents. This was not a compliment. This was a great insult. He's saying, you are like your father, Satan. And he is rebuking these Pharisees or these Jews, these people coming to him to be baptized. He says, bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And he says, don't even begin to say, oh, well, we have Abraham as our father. He's like, God's not impressed with your ancestors. God's not impressed that you're a physical son of Abraham. It doesn't matter what family you were born into, you still need to be born again. And this is all preparation, right, for the Messiah to come and those who would believe Jesus as their Messiah and repent of their sin and turn to him would have a new birth that Jesus speaks about. John's saying, don't even say, well, we have Abraham, our father. Like God's not impressed with your ancestors. God's not impressed with who your family is, that you personally need to repent of your sin. You personally need to flee from this wrath and judgment that is coming for all those that don't repent and embrace the Messiah who's coming. And it's not enough to just submit to the physical rite of baptism. He's saying you need to show by your works that you truly have a heart that has repented. And so when we think about repentance, this is important, right? We're not saying that this is any kind of a, by our own works or righteousness that we're saved. And sometimes like it could be, and you could understand why maybe if someone just has a surface understanding of scripture where they could see where, oh, some scripture kind of contradicts because you know, repentance of sin, doesn't that mean we have to work in order to be saved? Or, or doesn't that mean, we'll look at James, when James talks about, about true faith, and he's saying you're, you're justified um, by your works. And but the thing is, though, when you look at all of Scripture, it's very harmonious. It's not contradictory, right? Repenting of sin is not saying that we're earning our salvation by any works that we do. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But a heart that's truly going to believe, a heart that's truly going to trust in, in the Messiah and embrace Jesus as the Messiah, 
is a heart that recognizes that we have need of a Savior. It's a heart that says, I am turning from this life of sin. And I am turning to Jesus Christ. See, faith and repentance, you've probably heard it, it said that it's, it's two sides of the same coin. That repentance of sin means this, that I recognize my sin, I see my sin, and I see I need a Savior. And I'm willing to turn from that sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And what happens is the Spirit of God then gives us new life and causes us not to just repent one time for salvation, but that causes us to have a change of heart and a change of life. This is repentance. Now, as Christians, we still sin. We still sin every day, but the difference is this. We're not jumping into sin and embracing sin and identifying with sin. No, sometimes we'll fall into it still, but we're not jumping into it. What happens is that when we're saved, when the spirit of God indwells us, we no longer run towards sin. We're running from sin. We're running to Christ. God's given us new life that makes us, that makes us hate our own sin. Even sometimes sin that can be habitual and even addictions as even as believers, we can fall into that. But the difference is this. We have conviction by the Holy Spirit of God. We don't enjoy that sin maybe like we once did before we knew the Lord. We have a desire to repent, a desire to walk a new road. And so John's saying, look, don't just come and want to have this physical right of this baptism and have no intention of repenting and have no intention of changing your heart. <clears throat> By the way, back to the book of James, it's such an important passage of scripture because James says this, he says you're justified by your works. He's not saying you're made righteous before God by your works, but he's saying that your, your works vindicate or they demonstrate that you have a genuine faith. Well, this is similar here to what John's saying. He's like, look, you want to come and be baptized, but for many of them, it's like they wanted just this physical action of baptism, but they had no intention of, for some of them, had no intention of really changing anything about their life. And John said, no, you need to show that you truly are repenting, that you're truly ready to embrace the Messiah, the one who's coming through his death, through his resurrection, is the one that can cleanse you from your sins. Just don't, don't hold on to the fact that your ancestors were, or that your ancestor was Abraham, that you're a son of Abraham. No, God, he says that God could, could bring forth children from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. In other words, God's not impressed with your pedigree. God's not impressed with with your, your, uh, with your ancestors. Verse number nine, he says, now also the ax is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John's now warning of a judgment that's coming. He's saying those trees that aren't bringing forth fruit. So in other words, those who have not genuinely repented and genuinely prepared to embrace the Messiah, to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He says, those trees, they're going to be cut down. The ax is laid to the root of the trees. It says the trees that aren't bringing forth fruit, right? They're not bringing forth fruit to be saved, but he's saying that fruit 
demonstrates a heart that is truly repented, a heart that's truly embracing and believing the Messiah. He's saying they're going to be cut down. They're going to be cast into the fire. He's speaking now of a future judgment that's coming. The people asked him saying, what shall we do then? Like, well, what do we do? What do you mean, John, by showing fruit of repentance? He answered them and he said that he who has two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. So he's saying, okay, the fruit of repentance, if you've genuinely repented of your sin, if you are genuinely have a heart that's ready to embrace the Messiah that's coming, it's going to be demonstrated by how you live. And he's saying one practical way is you're not going to be consumed with possessions. You're going to live generously. So that's the first thing. And then comes the publicans. So now the publicans and the tax collectors, they're coming to him. They're asking, what do we do? And so he tells them, exact no more than that which is appointed to you. In other words, he's saying quit ripping people off. Quit taking the normal tax and then you're cut. Quit ripping people off. He's saying that's a way, a practical way for you to demonstrate you've had a change of heart. That you've repented of your sin, right? That you are ready to embrace the forgiveness of sins from the Messiah is you're demonstrating that you've had a change in how you're acting and how you're living. So now the soldiers in verse 14, they're going to come to him. He says, what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So to the soldiers, he's saying, stop extorting people. Stop being violent to bully people and scare people and extort from them. Oh, and by the way, be content with your wages. He's saying to the soldiers, this is a way, this is demonstrating fruit of repentance. And he's talking about how they live day to day. And look, let me be very clear. We're not saying that, that to be saved, right, to, to, to have salvation, that we're earning it, we're achieving it by any righteous works. No, John's just saying these works are demonstrating a heart that's truly repentant. These works are vindicating, they're demonstrating that you have need of the Messiah who's coming. That he is the one that will save you. It's his righteousness alone that will be imputed to you, that will be given to you. And how that's demonstrated is you have a change of heart. What's demonstrated is that something happens in your life. Doing these things would not atone for their sins, but it would prove their repentance was sincere. So verse 15, people are wondering, okay, hey, is this John guy, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Lord? So they're musing about this. They're probably talking amongst one another. And, you know, then John, word gets back to John. People are wondering, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And John is very quick to point people to, to Jesus, not to himself. Verse 16, John answering, saying unto them, he says, I indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. He said, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost 
and with fire. He's saying this, that the Holy Spirit, that John said, I'm baptizing with water. But the Messiah, he's coming. And this is going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit to all those that believe. And that the Messiah would bring this baptism of fire, symbolic of that he would purify, destroy that which is lacking. Like a fire that burns up the worthless chaff. That God's power is a transforming power, a purifying power. John says... Oh no, there's one much mightier and greater than me. In fact, he said, the Messiah, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to unloose the, the, the latchet of his sandal. Now to us, we kind of scratch our head like, what, what does that mean? Like, what are you talking about, John? Not worthy to loosen the latchet of his sandal. Well, so at this time, this would be a job that the lowest servant would, would undo the sandals of their master, and they would wash their feet. Now, how many of you, that just sounds absolutely disgusting. Like you don't do feet. You don't like people touching your feet. You definitely don't like touching other people's feet. You can't stand the smell of feet. That's me. Like I don't want to touch anyone's feet. And I definitely, I don't want anyone touching my feet. That's just disgusting. It's gross. Well, think about this. They walked open sandals, probably on nasty, dirty, dusty roads. Imagine how gross, I mean, if you think feet are gross now, imagine how gross the feet would be. And you love how I'm talking about this right before lunch. Am I ruining your appetite? See, that's intentional, trying to get your mind off food. John says, look, I'm not even worthy. John viewed himself as not even worthy to be the lowest servant of Jesus. See, John's ministry was one of boldness, but it was also humility. He's pointing people to Jesus. In fact, we know from, from John and from some of the other gospels that there arises this, this um, little bit of a dissension amongst John's followers and Jesus' followers. And they're arguing it's a secondary issue about purification and baptism. And really, the, the heart of the issue, though, is there's some jealousy coming between their followers. And it's not so much John, definitely not Jesus, the sinless son of God, but their followers, there's a little rivalry going on. And they bring up this issue of purification and baptism, but that's just, there's a deeper, there's a deeper issue. And that deeper issue is there's jealousy amongst them. And I love John's response because they're like, hey, John, all of our followers are going to Jesus. All of our followers are going to him. And John's response is, yeah, that's the point. He says, he, talking about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. John's whole ministry was not to point people to himself, but to point people to the Messiah, to point to people to the only one who could truly take away their sins. Yes, John's baptism was important. John's baptism was symbolic about identifying with this message that they needed to repent, identifying with this message that uh, the Messiah's coming, the one who you need to embrace, the one who you need to believe is the one that can forgive you of your sins and, and wash your sins away. It was an important message but John had humility in pointing people to Jesus. He says, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant. I'm not even worthy to loosen the sandal 
the, loosen the latchet of his feet. Verse 17, he says, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Once again, John is warning about future judgment. Those who will not repent of sin, those who will not embrace Jesus as the Messiah, he warns about a final judgment that's coming. And you can see why John's controversial. You can see why John is confronting people here and some will believe and many are going to believe. Many are going to be baptized, but yet there's others that will reject his message because it is a, contra or it is a, a confronting message about the danger of judgment that's to come. He talks about the, the fan in his hand. This is referring to a winnowing fork. It was like a pitchfork. And what that pitchfork would do is it would scoop up both the grain and the chaff. And they would use that to kind of throw it into the air. And the, the chaff would just blow away. And they would then reserve and be able to store the grain and what John is saying is that, look, there's coming a day at this final judgment when God will know who are truly believers. That God will know those that truly have repented of sin, those who truly have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And he's saying that for those that believe, for those that believe, it's the hope and promise of eternal life and, and, and a life that's transformed by God. But for those that don't believe, there is a final judgment that is coming. And so you see, this is a message of urgency. This is a message of love. You might think, well, that's weird. What do you mean of love? He's warning people of final judgment. John's calling out people saying that you are, you, you're, that you, that you are not truly believing because it hasn't changed your life and you're not repenting. And it seems kind of harsh. It seems confrontational. But if you think about it, this is actually a message of love because it's a message of truth. John is warning people of a final judgment that's coming. And today we do the same. We warn people in love, but we warn people with urgency that if you don't embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as the Messiah, if you don't repent and turn from your sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a final judgment that's yet to come. And that message is not a message of anger or hate. It's actually a message of compassion. And it's a message of love. That's why there's an urgency for us to give the gospel. That's why there's an urgency for us to preach the true gospel. And that is this, that all who will come to Jesus Christ by faith, all those who are willing to turn and repent of that sin and turn to Jesus Christ that you will find salvation, that you will find that, that Christ will save you and change you. You and I won't live a perfect life, but we'll live a changed life, amen? We'll live a life where we still stumble, we still fall, and we still will be in need of the grace of God every single day in our life. But we will have a life that's been changed by the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit within us. And John is warning Warning of final judgment. He says many other things in his exhortation. He preached unto the people. But Herod. 
the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, and added, yet above all this, he shut up John in prison. John's message was bold. John's message was confrontational. And John suffered for this message. Herod, this tetrarch, this ruler here, he was, John, John apparently confronted him. It was preaching against even this ruler, Herod. So apparently, Herod took his brother's wife somehow and was, and had her as his wife. Well, John calls this out. John says, this is evil. This is wrong. Well, Herod didn't like this. The other gospels shed light on there's a, now a time when Herod's having this feast and, and his, his, uh, his daughter-in-law is, is coming and, and dancing in a very evil, seductive way. His, his young daughter-in-law in, 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 in Herod then says, I'll, you know, what, make your request. What do you want? And so Herod's wife that he took from his brother convinces her daughter, say, I want the head of John the Baptist. So Herod in prison has John in prison. John is literally going to be martyred. He's going to be executed because of his bold message. You find that not everyone appreciated and liked John's hard, true message. But yet John recognized whatever the cost. Look, God has called me for this specific purpose. To prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. Even though it cost him dearly. Yet John preached a message with boldness. Preached a message of love. But yet John paid the price for doing so. The question is, are we willing to speak the truth? Even if it costs us something. Are we willing to be truthful and bold, compassionate, but bold and honest and, and, and truthful, even if we may suffer for it? And I got to say, it's easy. It's easy to say yes right now, right? It's easy to say yes in the country that we live. It's easy to say yes in the time in which we live, though we all know, we all know the potential danger of speaking the truth, the, the potential harm that could anger people and, and that could cause maybe this physical body to be harmed. But what about when the heat gets turned up? What about when that day comes when it really will cost us more than just maybe mockery or more than just people excluding us or Xing us out? What if when there's more at stake, are we willing to preach a message of truth? And I hope the answer is yes. That we are, as a church collectively, as individuals, that we're willing to say the hard truth out of love, out of compassion, out of a heart that truly wants to see people turn to Christ, turn from their sin and turn to faith in Christ. But I wonder, are we willing to speak this truth, even if it means that we suffer for it? I ask you this today. Have you experienced true salvation in Christ as your Lord, as your Messiah, as your Savior? Have you truly believed? Have you truly turned from sin to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior? 
because the message of the gospel, yes, is good news to everyone that believes, but the truth is, as John pointed out, there is a final judgment that is coming for everyone. And for all those who know Christ, we long for that day of Christ's re return. We long for the day God calls us home. Now we know we have a purpose here, right? So we're living hopefully courageously, enjoying life as hard, as difficult as life might be at times. We're enjoying it and embracing all that God has for us here because he's got a purpose for us here. But we long for that day when we're in his presence in heaven. We long for that day when Christ returns to set up his kingdom here on this earth and the new heaven and the new earth. That's good news for all of us who believe. But it's not good news for those who don't know the Lord. So I ask you, have you truly been saved? Have you truly repented of your sin and embraced Jesus Christ as your savior? Recognizing, no, it's not any good work you can do. It's not about just stopping bad habits and stopping doing bad things that somehow you'll achieve salvation. No, no, it's, it's turning from that sin, but embracing Jesus Christ as your savior, as he being your righteousness, he being your Messiah, he being the only one that can change you, he being the only one that can save you, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin right now. Have you received Jesus Christ as your savior? Have you believed this gospel? Have you truly been saved? Because there is a final judgment that is coming and our only hope is to believe the gospel believe in jesus christ and this was the message of john he said prepare your hearts because the messiah is coming the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world he is coming he is jesus he is the only one that can save you but to embrace that you must understand and you must realize that you have a need of a savior that you are a sinner. It doesn't matter who your father or grandfather or great-grandfather was. No, no, no. You personally, I personally have to be willing to repent and turn from sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ.